and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Carlos Chapman, Assistant Professor of Law at Washington and Lee University School of Law. We will discuss her article, Myth of the Attorney Whistleblower, which will be published in the SME Law Review. So welcome to the show, Carlos. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine. Um, this is a really interesting paper, especially for me, because I just started teaching professional responsibility last year and you know, have, have been engaging for the first time as an academic with a lot of the topics and problems that you're discussing in the article. And I found it really illuminating in a lot of respects. So thanks a lot. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be using it in class and including it in, in my casebook. Thank you. You know, you know, the reason I wrote the article is because I was teaching PR and I read about Rule 1.13 Sarbanes and the interplay of the rule changes in the process. And I discovered that there were no enforcements, no litigation. You know, I, I talk about those rules as a cautionary tale to my students. And, you know, all the PR books talk about the threat of the um, sanctions and the threat of jail time and how, you know, attorneys are found to collude and found to not have disclosed how much trouble they can get in. But, you know, every time I teach PR, students are like, well, where's the case about this? <laughs> you know, you're giving me this big, bad threat where case and, you know, this passed in 2002 and there are none. Um, and so, you know, and the law zero is a funny result. <laughs> we were not used to zeros. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, it's like the dog that didn't bark conveys a lot of information about kind of what's actually going on in the legal landscape. Yeah, yeah. I do have the unique experience of having worked at Vincent and Elkins too. And so, you know, it's, it's hard having worked at the firm that represented Enron and knowing that some things changed, but others didn't afterwards. But I'm making this huge threat about a statute in class. And, you know, it's like the, the legal scholarship doesn't seem to match the reality. So I was trying to really reconcile it. Mm. Well, so Carlos, for listeners who may not have engaged as directly in professional responsibility questions recently, or for listeners like students, for example, who may not have actually taken a professional responsibility class yet. I wonder if you could talk a little bit in general about the nature of the attorney-client relationship and the duties of confidentiality and privilege. Sort of what are those and what kinds of obligations do they put on an attorney in relation to to the client. Okay. Yeah. So in the model rules, professional conduct, uh, there are several rules that emphasize that the person who retains you, the person who hires you is the client. And it gets confusing when you represent a business, because if you represent a business, especially a big corporation, you know, a corporation is a legal person, but it's not a physical person. So you are going to be interacting with representatives of the company. And so what rule 1.13, 1.13 wants to remind you is your client is not that person who you see every day. It's not your friend from law school who called you up to retain you on a matter. The client is the company and you are representing the interests of the shareholders and the other stakeholders of the company. You are not supposed to form a personal relationship with the individual who hired you. The other thing that gets woven in to Rule 1.13 and the Sarbanes changes is that when you represent a client, 
all of the information you learn belongs to that client. You owe that client a duty of confidentiality. And then you also are protected by the attorney-client privilege under the rules of evidence. And so if things are happening within the company or you learn things about your client, under almost every circumstance, you are not supposed to disclose. And there are lots of fun cases in PR about, like, I think I teach the, the book that has the kidnapping case where they refused to say where the bodies were buried. And, you know, the lawyers had people coming to their house and sending death threats because they wouldn't tell. But, you know, if they would have told the police where the clients told them the bodies were, they would have been in breach of the, the you know, they may have gotten disbarred. And so what 1.6 and what Sarbanes does is create these opportunities where an attorney uh, should first report up the chain if they learn of of the company, someone who works in the company doing something wrong. You know, you're supposed to report to management. Management should investigate. If management doesn't investigate, then you report to the board. And then in extreme circumstances, you have the right to report externally if it would hurt the value of the company or if it could impact the stock market. And so that change, the ability to report externally and that exception is what made everyone be up in arms about the Sarbanes changes and what made everyone up in arms about the changes to 1.6 and 1.13. The idea that your attorney could report could tell on you um, was just, you know, ingrained in, you know, 200 plus years of jurisprudence. And so the idea that we would create this exception was just so extreme. Mm-hmm. Well, so setting aside Sarbanes-Oxley and the changes that came along with it, which I want to talk about in a moment, are there circumstances in general where attorneys might be able to disclose confidential or privileged information um, despite the attorney-client relationship? I mean, I understand that they're pretty all-encompassing, but are there existing exceptions and what kinds of exceptions would there be? Um, even though, I mean, there are some existing exceptions, but, you know, they're, they're pretty limited. The most important thing to remember about confidentiality, um, I try to teach it, I talk to students about like a time-space continuum. You can never disclose something your client did in the past. So, you you know, if your client did something in the past, you can never disclose it. If you think they are going to do something that will result in certain death or bodily harm, you can disclose it. Um, if, I guess crime and fraud is one of the changes, but I mean, crime and fraud, I guess crime and fraud has always been an exception. Like if you think they're about to commit crime or fraud or if, but if they're currently committing a crime or fraud that's going to create financial injury, then, you know, I think that one's fuzzy. I haven't seen any cases that say it. Anytime your client is using your services currently to commit a crime or fraud, you can disclose that. But if they used your services in the past, you can't disclose it. And then you can get legal advice about compliance with the rules. But like if you call the ethics board, um, but you know, it's my understanding. I've had friends who've called the ethics board before, like they will tell you they'll keep it confidential. So, you know, that it's, it's, or if you need to defend yourself, you can disclose it. But those exceptions are so, so limited and so rare um, that, you know, I mean, the, the way that they're designed is 
you want to develop a relationship of trust between you and the client. You want your client to tell you the truth. And if your client thinks you are going to go tell the SEC or you're going to go tell the police, they may not be honest with you completely. And then it's, you know, it's impossible to, I don't do criminal defense, but you know, it's impossible to defend someone criminally if you show up at trial and you get surprised with evidence. It's, you know, it's impossible to try a lawsuit or take a deposition if a witness pops up and comes out with new documents and new facts. And so the best way to zealously represent your client and to give them service is, is to know all the information. We can't practice law in a vacuum. And all of our opinions are so fact dependent that if we don't have this open communication with the client, if we don't have this open relationship of trust, then it, it inhibits our ability to practice law. And that's the spirit of the rules. And so, you know, when these changes to 1.6 were adopted and when Sarbanes was adopted, there are just all these white papers and comments from practitioners who give a warning that's, that basically says, you know, even if this never gets enforced, the mere idea that an attorney could go to the authorities might have a chilling effect on the attorney-client relationship. Um, and it's it's a hard thing to measure. Um, there are some things, I'm thinking about an empirical study um, in a couple of years, talking with the ABA and talking with like in-house counsel to see if I can measure a change in behavior. Uh, but, you know, it's it's hard to tell when your client's not being honest with you because they think that you might tell on them. And it's, you know, I think the biggest change, the change that I anticipate is I think people are hiring lawyers less, especially in-house and especially at startups and at corporations. And I think, you know, some of some of these rules, some of this compliance could be why. Earlier in the talk, earlier in our conversation, you you mentioned that when a lawyer is retained by a business entity like a corporation, the lawyer represents the corporation and not the agents or employees of the corporation. Um, in your paper, you talked about sort of how in a lot of ways that seems to sort of complicate the relationship between the attorney and the client in the sense that the attorneys might not be necessarily privy to all of the relevant information. They may not have the context to understand the information. And as you just kind of suggested, companies or entities may actually hire attorneys to sort of do very discreet things rather than represent them sort of across a range of different activities that would enable the attorneys to kind of understand the broader business practices in in context. How does that make it more difficult for attorneys to engage in any kind of oversight or whistleblower type activity? So the, the changes in Sarbanes require that when an attorney reports externally that they have actual knowledge of wrongdoing. And, you know, most law students know actual knowledge is like the most difficult standard ever. Um, how can you actually have knowledge of anything that's in someone else's head? And how do you have knowledge of someone else's intentions? And when we're talking about corporate fraud, um, intent is a major element of every type of corporate fraud. It's an element of every fiduciary duty. And so for you to disclose externally, if you're going to report to the SEC, you know, you need to think you need to have knowledge based on your reasonable, reasonable, reasonable legal belief that, you know, your client is engaged in wrongdoing. And, you know, I practiced for 11 years and I can't say I ever had actual knowledge of anything my client was doing. <laughs> um, I think it's almost hard to say 
I had a reasonable belief about what exactly my client was doing. And one reason why I think I feel that way is because of a phenomenon I call in the article, I call practicing law with your head in the sand and in the silos. Um, you know, for a few decades, like there's a book that's written in the eighties that I cite, and then they updated it later, um, after the passage of, of 1.13 in Sarbanes. But, you know, since the eighties, it's been the trend in the legal practice that we specialize and you, you notice it amongst law professors. Like, you know, we can't all teach all the first year classes anymore because, you know, if you came from practice, you specialized if you went straight into academia, you specialized in one area. Um, you know, the, the mere fact that you can't just have any law professor walk into any classroom tells the story. And that continues through practice where, you know, you kind of focus on what you're going to focus on in law school. You focus on what you're going to focus on in your first job. And the goal is to become an expert in that one area so that you can charge the highest rates so that it's worth retaining you because you're the expert and you can do, get it, get the work done the most efficient and the, and in the best way. The problem with that is if I am a tax expert and the fraud is based on corporate governance, I don't have actual knowledge because I'm not a corporate governance expert. Or if I am a tort lawyer and it's a tax fraud problem, I don't have the knowledge to understand what a tax fraud problem is. And I think that's a genuine lack of understanding. I really don't think attorneys are faking that. Um, I, you know, I tell my students after the, you know, you know, you know, the most when you take the bar exam, like, you know, the most about the most areas of laws that day you take the bar exam. And then I would say within a year or two of practice, I just started to forget areas of law that I wasn't practicing in. And the longer I teach, the more I forget things that I practice, but that I don't teach anymore. And so, you know, you just get so in the weeds about one topic that it's hard to issue spot outside of your area of law. And if the standard for external reporting is you have that you have actual knowledge, I could never have actual knowledge about tax fraud because I don't understand tax enough. Um, the other thing I call is, is burying your head in the sand. Um, if, if you are retained to work on just tort matters, you know, you are inefficient if you go digging around for securities cases. Um, you are overbilling your client if you go digging around for tax problems. And so to be efficient and in compliance with other rules, if you see something and just your gut tells you it's fishy, but you don't know, you know, the right thing to do is actually ignore it, not to bill for it or to take your time digging further when, when it may be nothing because you don't have the level of expertise. People in our position remember <laughs> that the Enron fraud and bankruptcy were sort of a precipitating event in Sarbanes-Oxley and various reformations of uh, attorney responsibilities that you're talking about in this paper. But I think a lot of listeners might not be that familiar with Enron or might have kind of forgotten some of the details. So I wonder if you could briefly kind of outline what happened uh, with respect to the Enron fraud and bankruptcy and specifically what role did the lawyers play? in in that event. So um, Enron happened in 2001 is when they discovered that there was a problem. And what I find most interesting about Enron is that the way the fraud was uncovered was that some journalists at the Wall Street Journal Dallas office actually read the footnotes of their financial statements. Um, and so I like to call it fraud in plain sight. Like they told everyone that they were 
using a form of accounting that's not allowed anymore, that they were using special purpose entities, which they formed limited partnerships and limited liability corporations, uh, basically for the purpose of putting debt and other things off books so that it wouldn't get reported in their like quarterly and annual SEC filings. And so they would look good to the market. They looked better to the market than they were because of their usage of these side entities, which made them have exponential growth higher than any other company ever of all time. And that also made them, I think, you know, six months before the fraud was uncovered, Forbes called them like one of the most innovative companies. And they're like, you know, touted as a market darling. And all it took was for a Wall Street Journal reporter to actually read the footnotes to realize that it's like, hey, guys, we're not actually seeing everything in these financial statements. Once people started digging behind the surface, and the reason I think, um, you know, the entity structure and the use of attorneys is so fascinating is that um, they were forming these limited partnerships off books, and they would usually have a manager or employee be the managing partner of the limited partnership and get a fee. And they would put loans and bad assets in these limited partnerships, but Enron, the parent, would guarantee the loan. And because Enron, the parent, was guaranteeing the loans to these entities, they could convince banks to lend to these entities with no credit history because of the reputation of Enron. So it was like they would create an entity to get things off books, use the fact that Enron's credit rating is going up because they suddenly have less debt, then borrow money in this entity and use Enron's credit history to back the loan. And then they could get another loan because they just put more debt off books. So it's like this like crazy circle of moving money around just on paper, but not in reality. And, you know, with the attorneys, where the attorneys were involved, and this is why I talk about head in the land and silos, um, even though there were two major law firms working on it, uh, Andrews Kurth and Vincent and Elkins, the tax department was working on part of it. The corporate department was working on some things. Arthur Anderson is working on other things. And so, you know, the lawyers are being asked to issue true sale opinions or they're being asked to represent the individual limited partnership or some lawyers are being asked to represent Enron Parent. But, you know, each of those limited partnerships is a different person legally. So those lawyers don't have the right to report out to Enron parent because it's a separate person unless there's a joint defense agreement there. And then the tax specialist is not asking questions about conflicts of interest and governance that the corporate person is asking about. The corporate governance person is not asking about what happens if the tax people give an opinion that allows for this sale and allows for this accounting. You just don't have, you have the attorneys in their specialty silos not talking to each other. And so what, what made people so upset about it, John Edwards made a last minute addition on the floor of Congress. Um, and that's how we ended up with the Sarbanes changes is that even though, you know, Arthur Anderson fell apart, people at Arthur Anderson are convicted, people at Enron are convicted, no lawyers are convicted because they're not collaborating in the fraud. You know, none of the lawyers, all the lawyers who were at the law firms claim they did not know because they were practicing in their individual silos. And so while, you know, I believe there was a malpractice action and maybe it settled, you know, I don't think anyone had any disciplinary actions 
um, taken against them at any of the law firms, you know, other than the lawyers who were at Enron and actually like, you know, partners in the entities and obviously involved. But the lawyers who were external, who were just working on things a matter at a time, you know, basically said, we don't have enough knowledge. We didn't know what all was going on. We couldn't see the whole pie. We only represented this small piece of the puzzle. Um, and so what I found most interesting about the changes is that, you know, Sarbanes goes ahead and relies on the idea that an attorney would have knowledge, but they don't make any change to the structure in the way that attorneys represent clients and in, in the way we define clients. And so you make a change and you impose it on the exact same system. I just think it makes the system stronger. It makes us more likely to silo. And it gives me an incentive to bury my head in the sand because if I don't know, I can't report what I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so maybe you could like talk like specifically about like exactly what changes did Congress make in Sarbanes-Oxley in relation to the disclosure obligations it wanted to put on lawyers kind of to the best of the, you know, to the best we can kind of pin it down. What did Congress think it was going to achieve with with these changes and sort of what, if anything, actually happened? Like how in practice did lawyers actually react to them? We've talked about that a little bit, but maybe sort of if you could flesh out exactly sort of like what Congress was expecting or was hoping to accomplish as compared to what the kind of real world implications were. You know, I, I struggle with trying to figure out what Congress is actually trying to accomplish because I, like it's it's one of those things where it's like why did you even write this? Um, like which happens a lot when you read about Congress. Right? But you know, so I think John Edwards wanted his moment first of all, and I think um, attorneys were the only party left off the menu in Sarbanes, and their solution was to give the SEC the authority to amend the rules governing lawyers who practice before the SEC to have more oversight. Like it was just like, you know, SEC, y'all are the experts about what you need. We give you the authority to govern lawyers. Well, the problem is that just like corporate governance is state law, like how a corporation is formed, what fiduciary duties mean, that is state law. And so when you impose the securities regime on that, you've got a lot of kind of after the fact monitoring of companies because the SEC can't go in and say, this is who you're, who needs to be on your board of directors, but they can say, these are the reports you need to give us. Like the SEC can protect the capital market, um, but they can't go in and invade the domain of the States and change what happens inside a corporation. The exact same problem happens with lawyers. The governance of lawyers is not federal. It's state by state. You take a state bar you don't take a United States bar exam. And because of that, you know, the SEC has always deferred to individual state bars for the governance of lawyers. And so when they had the comment period open, you know, the SEC made a lot of points of saying, we're not invading the domain of the states. And I'm sure they anticipated some state bars getting together and suing them. And, and, and that may be why they did it. And so they did it in a way that I think has no teeth. And so, you know, the first element of what, what the SEC did is say, you know, you must be an attorney appearing or practicing before the SEC, representing an issuer. And when companies have these nested entities where like Enron had, where it's a parent corporation and a bunch of subsidiary corporations, 
the issuer is just Enron. So if you are the attorney for the special purpose entity, you are not governed by the SEC rule. So that eliminates all of those attorneys who are representing special purpose entities. Then it's only the attorneys representing Enron. And what it then does is impose this regime of reporting up the chain. So you discover something, you tell that person's supervisor, the supervisor should investigate and follow protocol. You can also go to a SARB, uh, you know, a part 205 compliance committee. You can have a compliance committee internally that you report to at a company. You know, if those people do not satisfy you as an attorney, then you can keep going up the chain as high as the board. And you are only allowed to report externally if you believe that they are one, violating SEC rules and that it will do harm to the market and harm to the company. And that's where that knowledge standard comes in. And so that only applied to attorneys practicing before the SEC. And, you know, based on what I've read about the dialogue amongst, you know, lawyers and the ABA, there was some anxiety that, you know, the feds could continue to invade their domain. And so in response, the ABA amended 1.6 and 1.13 to essentially do the same and then apply it to all lawyers. And it basically is the same kind of up the chain external scheme, but it relies on the definition of entities as defined by state law, which again means if you represent that subsidiary and not the parent, you don't get to break privilege and go talk to the parent. You know, if you think the fraud is happening amongst the, you know, if you think the employee of Enron is the manager of this partnership and they are colluding with another employee of Enron you don't get to go tell if you are in, if you are representing the limited partnership. And so, you know, the real problem is there was, it, I feel like there was so much focus on this feeling that the attorneys knew something. And if the attorneys would have told someone something externally, we could have stopped it. There was a lot of focus on giving attorneys the right to speak, but there was a complete disregard for the way states define attorney client relationships and a complete disregard for the way states define entities. And I think that's how you get to over 15 years and no enforcements, nothing reported that we can find because it's, it's an impossible standard to meet. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's interesting is if you do not follow the protocol found in Sarbanes, meaning that you have to report to the SEC first. So if you just called up the New York Times instead of reporting to the SEC, you don't get whistleblower protect. You don't get whistleblower bounties, and you don't get whistleblower protection. So it eliminates the financial incentive. Like if if you think you know what, I'm just going to call up a reporter and be a quiet whistleblower and get it out to the press. Honestly, I think that might do more good. But if your if your company finds out you did it or your client finds out you did that, you have zero protection and no bounty if the government's able to recover. So um, they just it's like they've eliminated all the incentives. They've hurt the attorney-client relationship because of the mere possibility. And it seems to not have changed anything. Um, so, you know, a lot of people have said, as they've read this paper, well, if it doesn't do anything, what's the harm? And I'm like, well, a law that doesn't do anything is always harmful. Like, why do we have laws that do nothing? Um, you know, especially if they can change behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, so one thing that really helped me sort of wrap my head around the sort of consequences of the argument you're making were the examples that you offered. And I thought one was especially nice 
because of the Wall Street Journal parallel, right? So the much more recent Theranos bankruptcy and collapse was, of course, also exposed by a Wall Street Journal reporter. And you use that, I think, as a really powerful example of how, you know, the desire to encourage attorney whistleblowers to step forward doesn't seem to have played any role in in the Theranos debacle. And in fact, to the extent there were whistleblowers, they were non-attorney whistleblowers. So I wonder if you could just talk about that briefly as sort of like an illustration of the points that you're making. Yeah, you know, I find Theranos fascinating because Elizabeth Holmes was smart enough to hire attorneys from the outset. <laughs> like, you know, there are attorneys there from day one. And to me, it looked like attorneys were involved. And there's, there's, I have my students tracking the Theranos litigation, my, my RAs. There's nothing happening against any of the attorneys at Theranos, either at state bars or in the SEC uh, prosecution of, of Elizabeth Holmes. Um, the first in-house attorney at Theranos quit because he didn't like what was going on and was suspicious, didn't believe in their claim that they didn't need to report to the FDA. Um, attorneys were actually used to help, uh, you know, squash some of these whistleblowers directly. You know, they, they threatened to sue people all the time. They sent demands all the time. You know, you see attorneys there at every step of the way, but you don't see any attorneys reporting anything. The other thing that Theranos, other way that Theranos is interesting is they showed this unicorn phenomenon of, you know, this is a private entity. So the SEC rule doesn't apply to them at all. Um, you know, this, this company is not an issuer under the SEC. And so, you know, that whole element of it is eliminated. We still have billions of dollars of fraud. The whole SEC element that Sarbanes was intended to address is eliminated. All we really have to get attorneys to be whistleblowers is the, are the model rules of professional conduct, which seem to have done nothing. And yet we have just billions of dollars of fraud you know, people losing their retirement savings, you know, one of the guys committed suicide. It's just, you know, probably the biggest scandal of the last 10 years, attorneys there at every step, yet no, none of the things that Sarbanes intended to do or that, you know, the changes in the rules intended to do have happened. Um, the other example I use is Tesla because I find it fascinating <laughs> that, you know, te you know, that, that Elon Musk is doing all of these things and there seem to be no attorneys around. I know their general counsel quit in the middle of the, the most recent SEC issues, but you know if you know if if what this was intended to do was to make attorneys gatekeepers inside of a company and to you know keep people in check and to hopefully make them more in compliance with SEC regulations, you know it's like they can't even stop the guy from tweeting. <laughs> so you know how can an in-house attorney possibly? Um, you know, stop someone from committing corporate fraud. You know, I think it, I think both cases illustrate the limits of attorney power. I think that, you know, there's some, some perception that we have this element of control over our clients or, you know, that our superior knowledge and our legal knowledge can help them make better business decisions, but that's just not the case. Well, so Carlos, in, in closing, I mean, I think you've made the case pretty powerfully that the attorney whistleblower provisions of Sarbanes-Oxley uh, Sarbanes have proven to be toothless, if not totally irrelevant. But I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about like what can 
and should we do, if anything, around those circum, or kind of around this kind of set of concerns? I mean, is there a legislative or regulatory fix that might be more effective, or is this just something that we should walk away from and realize that it's not going to work? You know, I, I tend to think expecting attorneys to blow the whistle is a bit ridiculous. Um, you know, keeping secrets is how we make our money. <laughs> and so if we are no longer secret keepers, we, we, we begin to become obsolete. But I think there are ways to accomplish what Congress wanted without requiring attorneys to ever report externally. And I think that is actually the, the domain of state law. I think that, you know, if states change the way uh, we treat, I call it corporate families in my next, next paper, you know, if we change the way we treat a company like Enron that is structurally complex solely for the purpose of committing fraud, if those attorneys are allowed to communicate between entities because we say you look instead at who are you benefiting in the long run, like if everyone is operating for the good of Enron parent, then the top of the chain for all of the little limited partnerships and LLCs is Enron parent. And you would treat it as a family relationship where you can communicate outside of the limited partnership all the way up to the board of Enron, instead of just to the manager at the limited partnership who is the one committing the fraud. Um, so I call that paper breaking silos. Um, the other thing, um, so I would, I would consider changing, I think that takes a change to the rules, the corporate governance rules in an individual state. So the change to uh, the Model Business Corporations Act in that, you know, changing it so that we characterize a corporate family as a family for communication purposes and for attorney-client relationships and possibly other experts and possible gatekeepers. You know, if you're retained, we're going to look at who is the real party in interest. Um, and I borrow from real party in interest from CivPro. You know, there are times in CivPro when a union can sue on behalf of a union member. Um, and there are some other circumstances in civil procedure where, you know, you can sue in someone else's name. So I think we just borrow that for corporate governance and recognize that, you know, if you're doing what Elon Musk is doing, which is treating, you know, Tesla, SolarCity and SpaceX as his personal empire, even though he doesn't own a controlling interest in all three of them, you know, you can treat that as a corporate family for, you know, attorneys who are representing multiple entities, for experts who are representing the multiple entities. And I think that gets at the concealment of of information that happened. I also think that um, if we start to treat entities as families when they present themselves that way to the public, that could alter the SEC reporting. And so maybe we would have seen the balance sheets of these special purpose entities and saw that they were all debt <laughs> and that, you know, no entity other than Enron Parent was making a profit and all the other entities were running at a loss. You know, if I'm an investor, that's information that I want that I don't have under the current system. Um, you know, one company I've been looking into is Live Nation, which I learned has 753 um, affiliated entities. Um, so no single entity is important enough to end up on their SEC filings. And, you know, I just wonder, are any of those entities special purpose entities like Enron had that are just vehicles for debt? And we just wouldn't know. Carlos, thanks so much. This has been a really fascinating conversation. 
And I've learned a lot about Sarbanes-Oxley and the attorney whistleblower provisions. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's, you know, it's good when people care about PR, right? Um, we want our, our students. To be- <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, it matters, man. It does. It does. You know, yeah. it's the class that people, you know, dread taking and just feel like it's obligated, but it has so much impact on our lives. And, you know, I, I hope to write more in the PR space to bring attention to it. Melting pot to boil when all- 